0: A quick disclaimer. Opinions of host and guest do not represent the views or opinions of functional movement systems. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise program. This general information is not intended to replace your healthcare professional. Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. For our season premiere, we are excited to have Kelly Starette. Kelly is a physical therapist, strength and conditioning coach, a best-selling author, and co-founder of The Ready State. He's a friend of the guys, a thought-provoking medical professional, and a true coach at heart. This show is for everyone. Today, we dive deep into the subject of pain. The guys break down how we perceive it, how our movement and lifestyles affect it, and what we do as clinicians, coaches, and individuals to manage and relieve it. We also discuss if injuries can be prevented. So get ready for the season four premiere of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. Welcome to the Movement Podcast, Kelly. I know you're very familiar with the two men in this room with me today. However, if anybody's been living under a rock for the past 15 years, I think I should introduce you to our audience as well. So Dr. Kelly Starette is a physical therapist, a coach first and foremost, um, a uh, New York Times bestselling author, and the founder of or co-founder of The Ready State, which was formerly known as Mobility Wad. and for any old school, school fans out there like myself, um, it was the Mobility WOD. Um, Kelly, I'm sure you don't remember Decatur, Georgia, 2009, but I was actually a participant in a CrossFit mobility certification there, and I had the privilege of meeting you then. So I've been a fan ever since, and I've kind of been following along. So let's get started today.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that, actually. Actually, yeah. that's that's pretty good.
0: It's been a long time. <laughs>
2: let me apologize for just the complete waste of time. I, you know, I didn't know anything back then, but I did my best. And hopefully you've, uh, you've, you've, you've leveled up by hanging out with the real professionals. Oh, man!
3: Well, you know, Mike Boyle does that same thing every year. He goes, don't read anything I ever wrote last year by this book now. Cause I got it right this year, but guess what he's getting ready to say. And we, we tease Mike about that all the time. I mean, Hey, fair. you know, you, you say what you say and you learn a little bit. So
0: Yeah, you introduced me to the lacrosse ball, uh, the voodoo band flossing, so I definitely flossed my ankle for like six years straight. (laughs) Now I'm really getting to the nitty gritty of fixing it, but that was part of my only lifting training was flossing every day.
2: (laughs) You know, what's interesting about that 2009 piece, um, you know, FMS has been on the forefront for as long as we can remember about shifting this burden of Coming up with movement minimums, with shifting this, creating a notion that coaches should help people to be able to untangle their movement dysfunction or lack of ability to move, even if it's not dysfunction. And you know that a, was a really dangerous idea because that you guys were the first in this field. And in 2009, we started to experiment with hey, instead of speaking in a corrective exercise movement, and I think you know, everyone who speaks FMS and is in this crew will appreciate that you all were coming in to the dark ages of strength and conditioning where people were not squatting and they were not deadlifting. They were doing a lot of cable crossover, you know, bicep curls on the preacher bench. And it was really difficult to understand what was happening. And you all came in and said, hey, 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 let's start looking at these patterns, these fundamental positions that we think everyone should be in. And then you use movement to to fix that and facilitate that. Right. And one of the things I recognized early on, because I had been such a fan, you know, in physio school of your work and, you know, everyone spoke the FMS around me, was I realized, look, you know, these guys do it great. They don't need different sets of corrective exercises, or repackaged corrective exercises to facilitate position. Instead, I came out of my manual therapy self and was like, Hey, because the landscape had changed and suddenly we were engaged in things that looked like kettlebell swings and kettlebell snatches and goblet squats, I didn't feel like I needed as much corrective movement to get there because we were doing the thing that you were trying to get people to do in the first place that they weren't doing. And so we really started speaking mobilization, which was what I called a position transfer exercise. And so instead of a skill transfer exercise, we use these position transfer exercises. And of course, Really looking backwards, what I'm seeing now is I was doing a ton of isometrics and a ton of tempo work and soft tissue restoration. And 2009 was really the beginning of something that I don't think you all were able to do because of the time in which you were, which was really shift this narrative of who owns pain, who owns pain, what is the responsibility of the coach and the athlete to be able to the trainer or the trainee to be able to take a crack at fixing these things, which are not injuries, which aren't requiring medical attention. You know, we used to say and had this bright line that, you know, pain is a medical problem. And I want to, we're now sufficiently sort of sophisticated as a community where we can say things like, well, maybe, you know, if you, if pain is interrupting your ability to occupy a role in society or do your job, then potentially now that's a medical problem. And now what I saw in 2009 was that we were shifting the narrative of self-soothing, that people could take a crack at it. And that was okay and actually part of the language of a good training program. And then now as we've kind of spun up and certainly pain-splained our way back into understanding sort of the complexity of of pain science, we realized that really there's a ton people can do to change how their brain is perceiving what's going on with their bodies and we can always improve their movement but you know i think it all comes back to the thing i mean i wish i was you know the movement screen or the fms i wish i had movement in my language but there's no way i could you know so you know it all comes back to the thing that you all have been been doing better than anyone else for a long time which is re- refacilitating people's ability to move now well kelly i'm honored uh,
3: of your recognition of that and and secondly i honestly have have tried to say you know, all this time, I know what you think your problem is. But if we screen it, and you also tell me what your problem is, if we wind up disagreeing, let's work through that. If we wind up agreeing, let's work through that. But what what I've realized is there's been an erosion of awareness, and and just the two the two places. I, I know where you were last week, CrossFit Games, right? And then uh, I I don't know which river you were on though when you went uh, on the river. What river you on?
2: South Fork of the American. Okay.
3: You're at the CrossFit Games. Meanwhile, I'm in another universe in Hershey, PA, walking around a theme park. And 80% of the people have an obvious gait problem. And then I see somebody without a gait problem and an organized posture. I'm stealing that from you. I love that. Their posture is organized. Their gait is organized. And they're moving. And you look up and see this head moving through the crowd faster than everybody else. you're like, what's that guy going so fast for? And you're like, ooh. What's everybody going so slow for? And you look and people have these unbelievable, you know, wobbly gates, or you can sell as an obvious limp, one foot is outturned. It's just all this, and nobody's even aware of it. The only thing that stood right. out in Hershey PA was the 20 percent of people that were still moving in an authentic fashion with a gate archetype, just just a, a stride that seems effortless, like they're gliding. It doesn't matter if it's up or downhill or something. And the, the thing I was getting to is, in the CrossFit Games, you often confront somebody who's creating a health problem by the way they're training, maybe myopically or something. And and so a health problem by a highly fit competitive person is sometimes just as unrecognizable as somebody, you know, carrying co- you know, cotton candy in one hand and a cell phone in the other. I mean, they're both unaware that they're part of their biggest own problem.
2: You know, we inherited a movement sort of vernacular. It was like movement fault. Like that was, uh, you know, that came out of... Um, you know, the New Zealand kids, you know, there's a positional fault, mechanical fault, um, you know, and you all have said, hey, we have a movement dysfunction. And I have continued to shift to say compensation. I'm not even sure this is the right word. And I'm really excited to talk to the three of you because I really do want to brainstorm about what this is. Because, you know, the, we've come out of this physio landscape where everyone is everyone is a unique snowflake and everyone is just a novel movement solution, which really, I feel like negates the the power and the authenticity and the possibility of what the body can do. And, and Franz Bosch, who's come to be one of my favorites, you know, he's just intolerant of, of silliness, um, has this great saying that said, you know, that there's more variation in waltzing than there is in sprinting, which means that low loads, low speeds, it really probably doesn't matter for a while. But as soon as we add load, speed, metabolic Mm -hmm. (laughs) demand, cardiovascular, you're going to see all of the best features sort of self-approximating that they're all going to start to line up where we do see the best expressions of the human physiology. And so the question for you, because I've been struggling with this is if someone's foot is turned out and the arch collapses and the knee comes in and they start to develop knee pain, is that how, what's the language that we need to say around that? Because one of the things that I know that people struggle with is saying we can prevent injury, right? We can, yeah. you know, and what I want to say is, you know, most people are living in a dark house and they are losing movement choice. They're losing movement capacity. They're mo- losing the ability to express full physiologic possibility, That means their hip doesn't flex all the way and you can do all the squats you want sometimes to get there, but just not going to restore it. And your body's going to work around those issues because it is your survival mechanism. So if your knee starts to hurt because you've been working around this problem for a while, you know, one of the things that I know I can say is, well, if I get you into a better position where we're able to turn on more and access more of your native physiology, your native capacity that's a better choice. So we always teach to the highest expression of the movement. And that's if you drop in, you'll see that there's no discord between anything FMS has ever done or said that you all or anything that I believe. I mean, these things are again, mutually accommodating, but what is this conversation? In? Cause what you're seeing is at low, low, low speed. These people can get away with murder because our bodies are so tolerant. You can walk around with a missing hip extension and use your lumbar as a, as a gate mechanism, mm-hmm. right? You can run really fast with your foot turned out, and all of a sudden you can't one day because something hurts. What is that phenomenon called when a musculoskeletal problem pops up or we have pain or real tissue trauma related to poor physiologic expression? What is
3: that? How do we call that? i think I think what's happened here, at FMS headquarters, definitely with the help of Kyle Kiesel and Phil Plisky, is that we quit talking about injury prevention and we talk about musculoskeletal health and the risk factors associated with musculoskeletal health. Now, the two that that are right up front and you can't really do anything about right away are pain with movement and BMI. Okay, we see movement problems in people who are malnourished on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, we've got way more people on the obese and overweight end of the spectrum right now. But you can't do anything right now about movement pain or obesity. Those are problems that we've got to deal with with a lot more organizational lifestyle. But the Y balance test and the FMS have emerged as actual bona fide risk factors. When you have a reduction in overall movement quality or a serious asymmetry or a reduction in balance that puts you in a risk category, these are something we can do something about right away. So if you're coming at your health goal or your fitness goal, carrying a truckload of risk factors. If we could simply see if some of those risk factors can be mitigated, and they almost go into two camps, the ones that we watch and the ones that we take action on. So we don't take action on obesity and in a fitness environment or coaching environment, we can't take action on pain because it hasn't been diagnosed. And so the the one thing that Lee was defending the movement screen against the NATA back in the early days is like guys, guys, quit worrying about the movements we picked do you think a kid playing junior high or varsity sports should have pain in any of these movements? And the answer is no. And yet that after they pass a high school physical, we're looking at 20 and 30% of the kids saying, I'm ready and my MD says I'm ready, having pain on a deep squat or a left lunge or a shoulder mobility test. And we're like, regardless of the scoring system or the positions we picked, None of which are outside of normal goniometry. They're just in unison and in functional positions. Why? Why wouldn't this happen? The other thing you said is, you know, at low loads, at a very um, slow th- uh, position, most of these compensations probably can't hurt you for a long time, which has always been my case. If I can see your problem in something as simple as a movement screen. And you want to run 5Ks or you want to basically climb rocks or you want to ski moguls or you want to learn to stripe your backhand, let's fix this before we call it a skill problem because you may just not be working with good mechanics. And if you are at compensation, which is a reflexive behavior, your compensation, if you get ones on the movement screen are at a subconscious level, that means if you get a one on the squat or a one on the push-up, you can consciously try harder And you still can't do any better, which means we got a subconscious problem. So, a lot of people waste a lot of time talking people out of a subconscious problem. It's like saying, you know, uh, putting your fingers in your face and saying, don't blink. It's going to happen every time. So, we've got to go in low, and sometimes we'll work on rolling and single leg stance gets better. But it's because of what you said. If we can see the root of this problem all the way down in a fundamental position, why wouldn't we? pick exercises that don't make that worse and maybe even choose a few that make it look better because practicing the test is what we never wanted anybody to do with the FMS. Don't, don't do exercises that look like this. If your balance is good, you won't need to juice it. And if it's bad, don't practice the balance test. Do things that inherently are a nutrient
1: for balance and then let the test vet your expression. So I think the one thing, the one thing that Kelly, you and Greg both touched on and Kelly, you, you started off talking about it is this idea of corrective exercise or this idea of fixing the problem. Um, and you said it with, where you're going to say, okay, whether you have a movement screen or not a movement screen, if you got a problem, we need, to, we need to address it because it's going to create compensations once you start loading it. And I think historically for us, we've gotten kind of pigeonholed, and it's always about the dysfunction. It's always about the movement problems. And I think the one thing that we've said from day one is, Well, okay, you've got a movement problem. Let's take the squat. You're talking about the knee caves in, the the foot collapses, and your knee hurts. Well, there may be another activity or exercise, like a split squat or a lunge, that doesn't create problems, that you do well. So the whole thing about screening and talking about movements, movement dysfunctions, we also need to be thinking about the other side of the coin. All right, you're getting ready to go and load this. We know if you've got a movement dysfunction, loading it is going to create problems. But there's a whole other side that... You have that you can load, you can do certain things. We just need to avoid this other area over here until it gets better through whatever strategy. And it's it's really trying to get away from just saying, well, we're screening or assessing, trying to find the issues. Well, and our, actually what we're also doing is trying to find what you can do. So it's, it's both of those areas that I think I that. Um, people need to wrap, start wrapping their heads around even more that exercise can be a problem if you're doing it inappropriately. But there's also things that you can do that exercise can be good for Um, because exercise in in itself could be a risk factor if you're loading a dysfunction or compensation or whatever you want to call it. I honestly think the need for corrective exercise
3: as a a service that we would provide, and it's a very necessary service framed correctly because the first thing we got to do is protect you from your dysfunction. All right, elevate your awareness, protect you, stop doing that. However, if we start doing this, this will this will jumpstart some things. But I honestly think if we picked our exercises more correctly, and then to your point, and you've always been a champion, this execute the exercise correctly. Good technique is the best stability training in the world. If you pick the right exercises, and and you know, I I honestly think that good mobility and good technique make you not have to stop off at Stabilityville and do two months of that. You get you get the mobility cleared. You get the joint pain free. You get the body organized at body weight. Start adding loads so as not to disadvantage movement, and you will gain stability in every workout session as an aggregate of getting strong, and strength and stability should grow hand in hand. You shouldn't have to supplement stability work. and And we often do because somebody's gotten so overpowered in their prime movers and under aware in their postural stabilizers that we have to go back and do a lot of Um, regimented dosed stability work. But ultimately, if we picked our exercises more correctly and then executed them correctly, regardless of what the load or (laughs) post looks like today, I think we would need far less corrective exercise than we do. And that corrective exercise would simply be a place that you were between your last rehabilitation experience and your onboarding back into your active physical expression.
2: One of the things that you said when we were you were at the gym uh, many years ago was you said, you know, I suspect that you've done a bunch of work that has helped people improve their FMS scores. And that was a seed crystal, of course, for people to understand a really important concept of what I've been hammering on around, you know, I'm like, I see you that you're in some kind of secret scroll program. That's awesome. But if you want to see how good your secret scroll program is, Go ahead and jump in someone else's secret scroll program and just see how well you thrive. And I'm not talking about loads or specialization or, you know, your ability to suffer on the, the bike. I'm talking about just the movement capacity. And one of the things that I do a lot of is I come into people's programs and houses and just see the holes in their programming. Hey, you're just not loading this split stance. And, for example, you know, what we see, you know, Mike Boyle in his rear foot elevated split squat, you know, people are like, oh, it's a single leg squat. I'm like, mm, maybe, maybe that's it because what's happened is that front foot no longer is turning out. It can't because you can't support yourself with a for- turned out foot. So he's constrained and blocked the movement. So we get better movement patterns on the front leg, but he's, you he sneakily figured out a way to load this lunge shape, right? This lunge pattern. And, and I, I suspect that, you know, what, as an example, he created a solved a ton of problems because all of a sudden people were in this bilateral stance going up and down, up and down and never opening up the hip. And suddenly they were opening up the hip with the hip and extension. So to the first point is, you know, you're right. Absolutely. And should be hammering on the fact that your program should be able to come in and be tested in anyone else's in terms of validation right that's that's really important that you should be able to come in and hit people's movement minimums so if your if your program is shit hot Go ahead and jump in the FMS and let me just see how you're doing. Because you'll, you'll cook it. It's not that hard. I don't think people realize how low you actually set the bar on yes. the FMS. Yes,
3: God bless you for saying that. Jesus, it, it, I can't imagine. I'm like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just I,
3: I've gotten ones on a lot of the tests that I created. If this had been a self-serving <laughs> endeavor, I'd be the, the poster child for movement. But I'm not. It catches me everywhere I deserve to be caught
2: every time That's I right. deserve to be caught. That's right. I'm always missing shoulder extension forever. And I will forever be missing as a paddler. The second thing I think I want people to appreciate, because one of the FMS is not an easy test, it's a simple test to be sufficient in and, and practical in if you're moving appropriately. And that means that part of your strength training, your fitness physical practice, has to expose your tissues to their normal physiological ranges. Yes. So if you don't, if you aren't taking the shoulder into extension. Don't be surprised when that your body kind of starts to create a blind spot for you. I mean, that that will happen. That's easy. I mean, if you're a cyclist and you're pelotoning your brains out and all of a sudden you can't lunge or your back. gets all wonky. I mean, just be prepared. Right. The second thing is, and I think this is really an aberration. I know this. I'm like the FMS poster child for awesomeness right now. But um, <laughs> the problem is that people would be they do the FMS and they would stick it in a drawer and they didn't consummate. The, the idea of, hey, look, you aren't spending any time in this. You can't put your arms over your head. Why don't we, A, we could do corrective exercise for that. We could actually program more of those overhead positions. We'll get you hanging, right? There's so many ways you can mobilize overhead. But one of the things that I think is the mistake here is that there's such a gap between understanding the diagnostic tool as also the stimulus for adaptation. And what I want people to understand is that I, you know, in so much that your range of motion is a moving target and your brain's ability to touch those pieces is very much a moving target. That means that we need to more closely conjoin what I'm doing in the gym with understanding what's happening today. So it's not just this raw physiologic experience in the gym. And then there's some parallel universe where I care about my range of motion. You know, have a baby jump on a red eye run a marathon and then let's go ahead and look at how well you move and guess what you're going to move like horse crap and that's the point we should be able to pick that up and that the language of these screens the language of diagnostic assessment should make it easier for us to say oh I really need to spend some extra time in this position today in the gym so that I can come back to these movement minimums, right? That I'm like, oh, if I even just improve my shape, improve my archetype, improve my pattern, a lot of times pain gets better in the process. But what we know is performance gets better in the process. So what I've really started to shift to is, you know, it's all about biomotor expression. How do I know I'm right? Well, if you're in a better position, you generate more force right? That's really amazing. And what we're trying to do further and further is say, Hey, look, let's put pain back in the language. If you come in today and you suck and your wattage is off, then I'm like, what's going on? You were like, well, I smashed a bunch of beer last night with my friend Lee in Germany and I ate a bunch of pretzels. And, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sleep deprived. We're like, Oh, okay. I see why you suck today. Kelly, you have been doing these things, which are a strain on, on the CNS strain on the organism. Right. But if we look at load, pound, poundage, wattage, anything balance, we should also be able to add just pain in there. That level, first level of pain is just the same information as these losses of poundage, losses of forces, losses of wattage. And so really what we're just discounting is this really innate interoception about something is going on, what's happening with lack of range of motion, sensitization, or crappy lifestyle, whatever it is. Well, Kelly, in
3: all the things you're working on right now, and, and I know you got a lot going on. You got the Ready State, you got Halo, you definitely got the the, the initiative with Stand Up Desk and Kids. What does your pain message look like there, or are you formulating the pain message now? Because I honestly think people wake up in America right now with aches mm. and pains and assume that's what 30 feels like, mm. or that's what yeah. 55 feels like. And I think you and I both are, the, the two things that I've identified, you and I are are probably mobile enough to push ourselves into positions where we don't want to go, thus explaining many of our uh, musculoskeletal issues, surgeries, whatever. I don't want to get to that later. But in in the new way that I think you get to frame yourself in this message where pain is not normal, and the one thing that Kiesel and Plisky and, and Butler and those guys have told us from their research... If you are in pain, your responses to movement like on a force plate or a perturbation are inconsistent and unpredictable. Right. Now, you wouldn't send either of your daughters to school in pain and expect them to learn the lesson as easy as they would if we could unburden them. We want to get that earache handle. We want to get that toothache handle. We want to get that broken toe managed. So when people show up at the gym, show up at the at uh, at the at the clinic, show up, and at, Lee and I are blown away how many people who are fitness and even healthcare professionals show up at our workshops and they have reconciled, oh yeah, I, I can't deep squat anymore. My, and they've never challenged it once. And we, we walk over there with a Brian Mulligan mobilization and spin that tibia and hold that femur where it's supposed to be, which is actually a stabilization. They're like, Oh, that's the first time I've squatted without pain. And I'm like, you could have been squatting without pain the whole time, but you're thinking I need a scope and I got a your horn. And, and the, the two places I've gone and, and I want to go back here again are, um, people always want to know what's wrong with me, but they never ask, what am I doing wrong? And, and that's what Lee and yeah, I are aiming so much of our message at. And with your access to, to these different ways to speak, I honestly think getting the Western brain to quit asking healthcare, what's wrong with me? Because they'll always have a product, procedure, or service. They'll sell you for something wrong yeah. with you. What are you doing wrong? You're sleeping like crap. You're not hydrated. You're not aware that you've got a balance problem. That Those three things alone can give you a bad
2: experience in the gym for three or four years. I was just on a handled the CrossFit games. And I asked everyone in the crowd, you know, in the stands, I was like, how many people would describe yourselves as pain-free? And like one hand goes up out of a hundred. And I was like, okay, so let's start with that. Right. Which, you know, which means a couple things. One is that pain is, is a very typical human experience. And that means that we can actually wrap our heads around a little bit more, right? That we, one is, okay, we don't need to fear this. This is a common issue. And we're being very disingenuous around, should we, how do we think about helping someone self-soothe or unburden them? I really like that phrase. And what I'll tell you is, first and foremost, yes, you know, uh, our friend Perry Nicholson, pain is a request for change. I love that language. Second is that we've been very disingenuous about helping people to solve that in a, in a better way. And I solve, alleviate, attenuate, self-suit, whatever, whatever the language is not going to trigger you here in in the pain, pain game. But people have been reaching for ibuprofen. Opiates are now coming back up, right? We've seen um, people reaching for bourbon. They're reaching for THC. They will do anything to reach for something that takes that away. So, if we don't address it in a, in a more in a more or less say holistic or wholesome way that really helps them to, to manage it and, and and take it and get the brain to stop caring about it, then shame on us because people are doing that for themselves by just putting band-aid after band-aid on it. Right? Mm-hmm. So what I think that I'm a big fan of is saying, hey, look, you know. We hear and know, and you all have been saying this forever, like we don't treat the man, we don't treat the scan, we treat the man, right? That your MRI is going to say, you know, you are a human being who's been going hard in the paint. But if I have one person who has your problem is pain free, then that outlier sort of negates the entire hypothesis that this is a pain generator or can always be. Or it's a hundred percent structural problem. That's right. Right. And what I'll tell you is I, um, you know, I've sat in surgeries with my NFL friends and their knees look like garbage cans. There's gigantic loose bodies and they have no meniscus and they have bony outgrowths and they look like their knee looks like a garbage can and they don't have any pain on that knee. So, you know, clearly there is some top down processing that is going on that. The brain says, "Hey, this isn't a, a rise to a level where I need to get you to pay attention to it because you know fun- functionality is messed up, right? Can't can't bend my knee, can't do what I want to do. That's a that's a big deal. So the first thing that we're we're trying to tell people is, I'm like, hey, look, let's see if we can desensitize it first. And sometimes that's just simple. That's grab your percussion gun. You know, let's do some contract relax on it. Let's change your breathing. Let's." get some sleep. Let's drink some water, right? Let's, you know, let's cup, let's voodoo floss, let's scrape. And by the way, all of those things can be done by you safely at home, without a physical therapist, without a chiro, without a doctor, which for me is revolutionary, right? I mean, I'm like, oh, we can remove a medical practitioner from you and and your problem, by the way, that's already there. You're just dealing it with bourbon and ibuprofen. Yeah, right, and let me so interrupt you right here.
3: I think people can take that great advice, and in four sessions or a few weeks, it hasn't made a difference, then we'd be the first to say, I'd quit doing that too and start going doing this. But, but Lee and I have noticed this. When we get to an FMS workshop, and this goes back to the early days, and the question always comes up, if the movement hurts them, we call it pain. Well, what do you think pain is? And we are such a... You said desensitize. We are such a creature of comfort culture that anything uncomfortable is often perceived as pain. And so when you say desensitize, I actually think you're rephrasing what Lee and I have, that that there's going to be some... If you're out of shape, you're going to be sore getting in shape. If you're in rehab dry needling doesn't feel good. Neither does cupping or scraping. So there's a lot of discomfort that you're going to have to face. And we have to separate the discomfort of learning to move better, the learning process, with actual the inflammatory or mechanical body or response that we call pain. So when the 20% of the people follow your advice and get better right away, I actually think you 're spot on you desensitize them to this physical life. you were in an environment that you weren 't fit enough to be in you 're supposed to hurt <laughs> right first first day of the summer you 're walking
1: on gravel it doesn 't feel good <laughs> but part part of the Amen. struggle Amen. but part of the struggle would be you know what is the underlying cause of the pain and you have to we have to fix we have to give them some insight into to dealing with that as well as Is is doing all this stuff to desensitize it. And then on top of that, is it their behaviors? Is it
2: something in their lifestyle that creates these these issues? Let's start with the fact that the human being is the most sophisticated structure in the known universe. Your brain is the most complicated structure in the known universe attached to a physiology, the rest of your body, that is also equally the most sophisticated structure in the known universe. So combined, your mind, your brain, and your body is really complex. So right now, I have a bunch of athletes at the Olympics, and if you dropped yourself into the Women's World Cup final on the mountain bike, you would perish in pain. You would just perish. You would just burn up. (laughs) like You couldn't even handle, and that, by the way, is like a Tuesday, right? That's not even a thing for these women. And so what, you know, (laughs) uh, clearly, your genetics, your previous experience, your, your, the arousal, you know, I mean, like I remember, you know, you know, my, I had fallen on a rock in Chile at the world championships where I met my wife was carrying a raft down a, um, a slippery slope fell and like put a, like a a boulder into my hip (laughs) and blew Right. And I was like, Oh, I, I broke my back. And then my cute, Future wife walked past, and that was gone in two seconds. I was like, "I'm fine." Totally <laughs> right. And uh, sometimes you got to blow up. Down processing. <laughs> That's right. So this process, top down processing, is really important, but bottom up also matters. And what we are seeing, and I agree with you guys, is that we have an uh, environment organism mismatch very much, which we are talking about. In fact, Julie and I are working on a book right now called "Built to Move," which is really putting the heart back into Supple Leopard, which is let's walk more, let's manage sleep, let's appreciate that eating more micronutrients and working on balance and sitting on the floor, all of those things aggregate and work synergistically together to make a more durable, resilient human being. So that like, like we're all wanna go climb Everest, but we should all just get to base camp first, right? So let's not talk about diet and exercise. Let's talk about the, do you have sunlight on your body? Yes or no. I mean, and the answer is no. You know, you don't. So there are some type one errors in all of our thinking. So we have to address that, and it's it's complicated. And simultaneously, from the bottom up. Desensitize is, is this crappy word because, s- simple, like, you know, I, I just came back from Junior Olympic water polo tournament with my daughters, and some of the girls were like, Oh, yeah, something hurts. I've got shoulder rabies. You know, I don't say cancer, I say rabies, Gray. You know, you don't have shoulder cancer yes. for me. I have shoulder rabies, <laughs> bone and, cancer. Um, yeah. Because I, I feel like it's even crazier to say you have shoulder rabies. People are like, That's a thing. I'm like, No, it's not a thing, but you can look it up. But, you know, quickly, I can get that kid 100% feeling better in like two minutes. And I'm like, so what do you think it was? Well, your brain was like, pay attention here. You're super stressed, right? So when I say desensitize, the point of desensitization is not to let you go back. It's to, so that you are interrupted by that signal so that you can go do something important like move or exercise. Or All right, walk, our, our, our new word or, is
3: resensitize.
2: resensitize. Because stupid shit let's is supposed to hurt
3: and smart shit ain't supposed to hurt. So let's resensitize. Resensitize.
2: Resensitize. So, secondarily, I'm like, hey, let's decongest. Maybe you're a hot, swollen, puffy, congested, inflamed mess. And at things like compression and elevation and movement, those are ways to decongest the tissue. Because what we know is that if they have a super hyper-inflamed tissue – that can be sending signals to my brain to pay attention to this, right? And so, and by the way, if I improve your physiology by getting the groceries out or, you know, getting the garbage out and bringing the groceries in, oftentimes that could be addressing this underlying tissue dysfunction that is preventing you from doing what you want to do, whether it's movement or generation of force, absorption of force, right? You won't, it's difficult to load a pissed off tendon maximum. Right. Just, that's a true statement, right? But all of a sudden the tissue is has better hydration. It's not as congested locally. You're getting better turnover, right? All of those things that are important around our lymphatics or et cetera, et cetera. You know, we see that that sometimes can ameliorate or attenuate people's pain symptoms. Then we were like, well, can we pump that thing full of blood? We call that reperfuse. And so on we'll something like, oh, meet Mr. Bloodflow Restriction, which has been used in Japan for about a thousand years, right? Through Katsu and we've done it. And and so suddenly I'm like, wow, you can, do, you can get on an assault bike or stay in a pain-free range or we could do bodybuilding-like activities. Let's get you a huge pump and then let's go move or go train this thing. And then lastly, I would put on there is that we are trying to restore their native range of motion because what we have found, as you all have found, is that people who often show up with a painful movement, right? I didn't say a painful tissue, a painful movement, movement with pain, lack their ability to express or access their full normative range, their baseline physiology, their normal range of motion. And so oftentimes we just restore that for whatever reason, the brain's like, well, this is different. And that can start with breathing, getting someone exactly. to actually expand their rib cage or take a belly breath for the first time. The brain's like, well, this, that's not painful. And look, we're moving again. So, you know, Once we once we just do that, and I haven't even talked about your crappy training or your diet. I haven't talked. I'm just like, look at these things that we have access that don't require skilled intervention. Let's take a crack at those first. And what we've seen is we've been able to move the ball a long way. So that's how we're trying to reframe pain. That there's a ton on your plate. What Lee and I are trying to do in all
3: these different remote vehicles is make people question. Before we decide if you're overstressed or not, let's also establish that you're under-recovered. Because if you're under-recovered and we get your stress right, you still won't recognize it because you're still the big puffy ball of inflammation. So I tell you, this is a hard message to deliver face-to-face. You and I do it to people every day. We give them their come-to-Jesus talk or whatever, and we recalibrate them. How do you do this remotely? How do you you have this conversation with a person on an app who may have populated a data field or is just stopping by to get a new movement pattern.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I want to, I want to appreciate that. Um, and I want it to the way you all have done forever by making this transparent, you have given everything away that y'all do. And so 100% of all the information, if I'm smart enough to drop into the FMS world and take one step back, I can see that there's a sailboat in the 10,000 pixelated pictures, right? You, you've you given it all out, just not in this formal way. And if you want to see a formal way, just go to an FMS course. But the rest of it, you've been 100% transparent and, and you're like, play with it, integrate, steal, you know, perseverate, like, you know, iterate. Um, I want to appreciate that people are smart enough to do what works and they tend to reject what doesn't work. And that, I mean, they can definitely do it wrong or not have a big enough dose or whatever it is, or still have some type one errors around diet, lifestyle, nutrition, movement quality. But we do believe that people are clever enough to manage this. And also that there's a lot of ways in because everyone on this call is a super nerd about all of this. This is all I think about 24 seven, right? And I don't have to worry about a business or, you know, some other aspect that someone, you know, someone's liver values or running a grocery store. I get to focus on this one thing. And so what, what I have to appreciate that is that people will come in as a product of their system, a product of their environment. And there's a lot of ways into the great conversation. Eventually we're going to talk about all of these things, but what we need to do now globally is help people to identify or shift the conversation around. Hey, is 120 over 80 good blood pressure? No, it's not. But at least we have a benchmark. That allows me to understand that things are trending, and people have zero understanding of what their body is supposed to be able to do right? They have zero understanding of sort of what you have called minimums are for <laughs> decades now. I mean, I think the FMS is 1996. Is that right?
3: Uh, Probably right? 97, 98. We were, we were kicking stuff around and we were already doing more functional assessments in PT, but it never became a screen that we would do on people who perceive themselves well. We, we were doing some of those <laughs> things in, in the exam, but I'm like, People without pain can't do this shit either. Let's 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 start screening it. And Lee took the movement screen over to the high school physicals, and uh we were blown away. We we were blown yeah. away. And and there was an incident where people don't understand what they're missing. They don't know. No, and he was standing right next to a physician who goes back to Vietnam, who played rugby till he was fifty, and he was watching kids deep squat three at a time. And of course, deep squat was a was a hallmark of, of what we were doing too. And Lee's like why are you why are you doing this? I know why we do it. Why are you doing this? And the orthopedic surgeon, without any evidence or journal articles all says, because the kids that can't usually end up in my office first.
2: da <laughs> I mean, like, Yeah. Turns out moving moving yourself up and down is kind of important. And um so, you know, ultimately um we can start to block certain behaviors. So if someone comes to us with persistent pain or chronic pain, there's two things that Juliet and I do now. One is we're like, okay, I need you to track your sleep. And now that's actually easy to do because I don't believe you anymore. I'm like, mm, I, I won't take your word for it. You need to show me what actually you mean, which is actually a really interesting thing because the internet, I see a lot of, we'll put it into experts and gurus and people who to what we call swoop and poop, right? They're really good at that, but they're not transparent. They don't show their work. You can't actually see them work with people and you never watch their people move. So now I'm like, hey, a I need to know as a professional who you're working with. If you're going to say that you're the shit, let me see who you're working with. Let me see what your bona fides are. Let me see how you're testing your model. But secondarily, I need to have validation. So so trust with validation, right? Oh, you really sleep well? Great. Well, then that'll reflect in your whoop score. It'll reflect in your strain score. I can see what's happening. You know, the second thing is that I'm like, hey, I, I don't think you're walking enough. And if you're in so much pain that you can't walk a lot, then I need you to take 10 one-minute walks today. And then tomorrow it's going to be 11 one-minute walks. But we need to get you up to this 8,000-step sort of minimum where you're maxing out your non-exercise activity, which is maybe just decongestion or maybe just enough input into the system that the brain is like, oh, look, the body is moving. It's not an absence. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you've ever had shoulder pain and you lay down at night and you stop moving and your shoulder starts throbbing, it's not because you're laying down. It's because there's no other input coming into the brain. So the brain's like, I don't know what's going on in the left shoulder, but let's start paying attention to that. Right. So if we can start just doing those two things for people. And that is the power of this app base, which we can start to set minimums on what we think are the best behaviors. Then we can have the next conversation. So to your point, there's always going to be a need for a physio and a coach. And I think more coach is the right language who can now triage and be like, hey, we've taken a crack at this, or I think you have something that smells you know, more like we need skilled care. Let's go do skilled care. But someone's stiff quads is not a medical problem. That's a training problem. Right. No, and, and, and I
3: love that. And anytime we have an awareness to, and Lee and I were talking right before you came on about your first few videos, I think you grabbed a camera, got out in your backyard and you promised Juliet, you're going to shoot a video every day for like a year or something like that. And you just started sharing the common sense information that every great yeah. PE teacher, every great coach, or every therapist who knew, I can't see you for the 20 visits, I need to see you. But if you will do this, you got an 80% play, it's going to work out good. Not 100%. Nothing's 100%. But that 80-20 play of good general advice is, is what nobody, nobody really wants to take. They, they you know, and, and we're noticing the same thing in our military studies that you're noticing. When we bring in soldiers and operators that are sleep-deprived and dehydrated, their Y-balance scores and their FMS scores drop. Had, no. had I not known what their lifestyle was the last 72, 48 hours, whatever it is, I would be issuing a corrective exercise and a bunch of foam roll shit. But now that I know, they just need some deep sleep, they need to detoxify their life, they need to rehydrate, get their electrolytes right. boom, here comes movement back. and I was getting ready to prescribe exercise, scraping, dry needling, or whatever yeah, right. saying, and nobody's looking at their dashboard anymore. They're just assuming that the next energy drink will you know well, they're looking
1: to, well they're looking at the dashboard. The problem is there's data overload for most people now that, that are looking at those things, and they don't know which, where, they don't know where to start. Where, where yeah, do you start? That's
2: true. That's, that's very valid. You know, what we're trying to explain to people is say, Hey, look, I, I take the systems approach and they're all, they're all important. Is this, do I think I, you have a sliding surface dysfunction, right? You're just, your, your skin is just adhered to your Achilles and that's limiting your range of motion and the tendon sheath is not very healthy. Well, we can, we can just get that sliding very quickly and then, Oh, look, you can move again. So let's start moving again. right? This is a joint capsule problem. You know, sometimes you can do all the squats you want, but your, t- your hip capsule got stiff for some reason. I don't know what it is, but you're missing internal rotation. And so let's go ahead and just see if we can mobilize that a little bit. Let's like bias the tissue system. Is this your brain holding on to your muscle system, right? You have over tightness because it's a protective mechanism yes. or... You have gigantic quads and you're what we call stiff AF, right? Which actually happens. Muscles get stiff sometimes. And that can be made worse by lack of sleep and hydration and not, you know, not reducing session costs. Then we put movement quality in there, right? And when I mean movement quality, I mean we're speaking to putting your body into the positions where it needs to generate the most force. Right, where it, we it's unequivocal. This shape allows you to do the most rad stuff as a human, it's more right?
3: efficient and effective than the alternatives.
2: That's right. And look, if you want to be in a less effective position, that is your God given right, and <laughs> knock yourself right out. But you're gonna stand next to my medalist, so that's totally fine, right? No other man then mammal, then lastly, mammal picks
3: that position, but we
2: do. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally fine. I, I know it's because you're a unique snowflake, and the uh, your x ray says that. Um, And the lastly is this environmental piece, which is sleep. Do I feel safe? You know, am I stoked? Um, You know, look at all of those componentry. You know, so we get into the weeds a few years ago. Really, the physical therapists are like biopsychosocial, biopsychosocial. And I'm like, at what point did anyone trying to help someone go fast, help a team thrive, not live in a biopsychosocial model? Because look at team dynamics, look at workplace gossip, health, toxicity in the environment. And then, and then let's just pretend like that doesn't matter at all, right? And so, what I'll tell you is that I have found, felt like when we had our athletes eat better, right? At the military level, um, you know, at the C levels, these, these VP levels, you know, C organizations, uh, our Olympics athletes, et cetera everyone did better. Isn't that weird? So we really appreciate that this biopsychosocial model has always come out of the performance model. And all of a sudden the physical therapists are late to the table, but I'm like, Oh, you think in your 20 minute intervention, you're going to have this conversation about sleep and, and health and stress regulation and movement quality. And you didn't even watch this girl run. So, and you're like, cause heel striking doesn't matter. I'm like, it doesn't matter. How come no fast athlete in the world, heel strikes. So (laughs) The, you know, suddenly what we see is maybe the physical therapy office is not the right place to be having these conversations. And if you take your movement, health, psychosocial toxicity environment problem to your doctor, she has seven minutes to untangle that. Come on. We have to be thinking differently. And let me just throw this on there before we jump in. Choose something you give a shit about obesity, diabetes, depression, suicide in kids, ACL injury rates in kids under 14, ACLs in the NFL. To choose something and then just say, how we do it?" Let's give ourselves a grade. Are we getting better at this? What I think is we've figured out ways to sell people miracle solutions and it's still not transforming society. So really take a beat, everyone who's working in this thing and say, hey, maybe we need to think differently about the model who owns what because you're getting a failing grade. No, and and one of the things that that you and
3: I identify on, and if we back away from this physical therapy rehab model and think about what we do as biologists, Mm. there's nothing in natural selection that says you got to get really great marks. Natural selection says, uh, wake up and don't fail today. Don't fail your sleep. Don't fail your hydration. Don't fail your relationships. Don't fail your contributions. Don't fail your minimum movement quality. Don't fail anything. And that's all we've ever said with a movement screen. Just don't fail this because your first fail is your bottleneck, not the superlative. We're, we're not going to polish the, the shiniest part of your car so you feel better about yourself. We're going to find the one blemish, and we're going to all stare at it until it changes. And, and so... Every, I think that a lot of the places where, where people on stage in the market feel like they're competing with Lee and I, they're trying to sell a success strategy to that exact goal without mitigating the very first bottleneck that's going to impede that goal. And we're like, it's easy to push over the dominoes when you get them lined up. You, me... Pavel, Erwan, LaCour, Lee, we're all trying to just line up the dominoes so you have a real good push today uh, and you don't get that disorganized. And it almost seems like in Western mentality, people are very annoyed when we say something as simple as, yeah, your first bottleneck's over here. And time and time again, we got to prove it in an N of one every time. We remove that bottleneck, all the performance, everything else gets better. But yet, nobody ever wants to talk about that because it's not sexy. It's change your oil, have good tires, enjoy the trip. Yeah. Change your oil, have good tires, enjoy the trip.
2: <laughs> no nitrous oxide, yeah, think, no turbocharger, <laughs> you know. I don't remember who called it. Someone called it like a serial anecdotal empiricism. Like, like you, I mean, that really is, you're like an N of one because every human being is unique in their own dysfunction ways waste compensation. But- let's start with the hypothesis that humans are actually quite durable and quite, you know, tolerant of a lot of silliness until we're not. And I think one of the things that, you know, people like Yuval Harari have really shined, you know, if you haven't read Sapiens, I highly recommend it, is this notion that um, we're all going to be a hundred years old and we're all playing in this short term, very short game, right? It's, I think we can actually borrow some of the way of thinking about your next 50, 60, 70 years on Earth the, from the way we're starting to apply um, economic models to climate science. So bear with me. I know this seems a jump, but you are, you know, your crazy rat brain and my crazy monkey brain. They, I know where they're going. But we always assume that our future selves will be smarter and well, more rested and better able to handle that and more tolerant. And so we can put off that behavior because in the moment we don't actually see the the conditions between inputs and outputs, right? Like in climate science, we're like our future selves will have some technology and we'll change behavior. And so we'll solve this greenhouse emission problem later on. I mean, really that's sort of what we're thinking. And that's, that's an, that is a function and an artifact of our, modern human brains, which are interested in, am I safe now? You know, do I have enough resources now? And how could I possibly, I mean, where's the, what's that? Like uh, uh, planting flowers is such an act of bravery that you're going to show up the next year and they're going to be there right for those flowers, (laughs) you know? And, and I think most of us don't appreciate that the behaviors that we gauge in, which are, as you're saying, just pedestrian, low level behaviors set us up for this conversation of durability. They set us up for the back halves because we are going to be 100 years old. And I think the problem is many of the issues that show up in our lives, we look like outlier events when they could have been more control for on the front end. But because the human biology is so complex, how these things are so tightly interconnected and that we're so tolerant, it's difficult for us to see inputs and outputs. So what we think is there's no relationship. So what do we have to do instead? Well, I'm like, well, let's do these things now. And turns out you were sharper at work. You had more energy at four o'clock, right? You PR'd on your deadlift. What do you care about? So it Fortunately for us, these these metrics and these behaviors of durability are the same conversations that we're having at human performance levels. No, you're, you said
3: adaptability a long time ago. And adaptability and durability are two sides of the same coin. The more adaptive you are, the more durability you're going to have because – you don't put yourself in some situations, and you're ready for the ones you put yourself in, and you're a little bit closer to the baseline of awareness. And the other thing that, that we're talking about, baselines, is nobody looks at rate of progress. If I baseline you today, and you do X program, and your rate of progress is zero, then change the program, or something is seriously wrong with you. Because when we started teaching the functional movement screen, whenever we did, almost everybody sitting in the audience was functionally programming. Some were Olympic weightlifting, some were track and field, some were personal trainers. They all considered themselves far more functional. They had been to Gary Gray. They'd been to Vern Gambetta. They considered themselves functional. They go home and do the movement screen. And now the people they've been working with actually screen worse sometimes than the new intakes they're getting. And you either start to question that or you don't. That those, those baselines have humbled me probably more than they've humbled anybody else because I thought I knew and then I used a stopwatch and now, now I know, <laughs> you know, And it, but it's like <laughs> that feedback loop, being able to face that feedback loop is, is refreshing professionally. It took me about 20 years to face it personally, you know?
0: So. All right. Well, we are actually going to take a quick break and get back to our conversation with Kelly.
4: Ready to join the thousands of pros who have been certified in the FMS or SFMA? Then this is your chance to do so and take advantage of additional savings just for our podcast listeners. Whether in healthcare or fitness and performance, helping people get out of pain and moving well so they can do what they love is what Functional Movement Systems does best. As a professional, finding the biggest opportunity for success with your clients or patients has never been easier. Start your journey from the comfort of your own home with one of our virtual certification courses and quickly learn how to use these industry standard tools to properly screen and assess movement. These courses feature live interaction with our expert instructors to answer those tough questions and real world cases so you can learn how to find that biggest opportunity for success. For a limited time, save $50 off any FMS Level 1 or SFMA Level 1 virtual course. When you use code VERT50 at checkout, that's V-I-R-T-5-0, to get $50 off, go to functionalmovement.com and get started today.
0: My background is CrossFit. I started in 07, uh, got my certification, uh, became a coach, owned a couple gyms down in Charlotte, and now I'm here at FMS. Um, But I, I wanted to talk about, you know, I've been around for a while and it's so interesting to see the athlete that it was and when you had your gym previously opening in you know 05 the CrossFit athlete then or the you know even just the weekend warrior that they are you know no matter what their community is necessarily but that athlete who they were in 05 07, and who they are now like how has that evolved what have you seen
2: you know on the one hand, I think it is difficult to appreciate that when all of this really started, when the internet really started to kick on, when there was cross-pollination between these different communities, the bar was very low. And one of the things we were laughing about, the old mascot across it Pukey the Clown, and people were never exposed to intensity. So every once in a while, someone would show at the gym and vomit after a you know, hard workout. And that was the birth of Pukey the Clown. Well, it turns out we have Soul Cycle and Barry's Boot Camp and Orange Theory and all these high-intensity things. And, you know, so on the one level, what we've seen is high-intensity exercise and training has gone through the roof and that people are a lot more inoculated against intensity. On the other hand, also, we didn't understand a little bit so much how position drove mechanics, drove performance. And so what we saw was – Well, I, and this was, we inherited this model. We added another kilo. I went faster or in the CrossFit situation, I, I went faster than you. So I must be better or I must be doing something better than you. So that, that model we inherited and the old, you know, I talked to some of the old Olympic lifting masters and they would, you know, the model was let's train as hard as we can and then you'll break and then we'll back off and hopefully you can get a little further next time. That was really the old model. And, you know, Chad Vaughn is this incredible Olympic lifting coach, you know, and I was saying, hey, I think we need to get the feet straighter because it has better transferability and we tend to see better function of the ankle, better function of the hip and better function of the lumbar, you know, femur relationship with the foot straighter. And I'm not just exercising to go up and down and have abs. I'm going exercising to have abs, that would be nice. But also I'm exercising because I want to ride my bike more effectively or ski or or be able to cut. And so it took a minute for us to reconcile some of this behavior around improving people's position mechanics. And some of that certainly was just an artifact of that we weren't exposed. Most people came into CrossFit, didn't speak kettlebells, had never lifted a barbell before, certainly hadn't, you know, weren't competent in some of these basic model structural elements. So now what's happened is that people are coming in much fitter. I'll put that in quotation marks, right? But the unique phenomenon, even just two decades ago or 15 years ago, was that we were protected against we were protected against ourselves by our lack of fitness, our lack of strength, and lack of skill. And so we couldn't do a ton of work in less than effective positions. It was because we we're very strong. <laughs> was self-limiting, and we have moved and transcended past that very much. And as a coach, what I'll tell you is if you ever had an athlete who came in who had a huge engine but didn't have exposure to tissue right, or didn't have the control, they could get themselves into trouble. And you could definitely end up with a hot spot or a overuse phenomenon or something very quickly because they could exceed – they could overrev the engine very quickly because they came in with sort of a, a borrowed fitness that wasn't competent. And so now we're beginning to see that position matters more because it helps to protect. And we're also seeing that it transfers to more skills. And in the nascent phase of this functional training, functional fitness model, what we saw was that people um, were into GPP because it gave us good physical results. They weren't looking at how well it transferred to other skills and sports. I love that word,
3: transferability, because if you're exercising and the purpose is other than spending 48 minutes sweating, there's got to be this transferable thing. And whether you have clearly defined it or whether you're just assuming it, everybody does an exercise with the illusion of transferability. And Aristotle said, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, healthcare has done a really good job of weighing and measuring all your parts. But the expression (laughs) of human movement should be greater than that, right? Yes. So there are a lot of people that are considered normal at ankle, knee, hip, and shoulder range of motion, but can't do an overhead deep squat. And therefore, there's a conundrum there that we must answer in that if the human expression of movement whole is not present... You can question the parts or you can question the way the parts are used, but don't try to fix the whole until you've asked both those questions. And if you ask the question and the parts are good and the person's not doing anything stupid, they've got to re-embrace this pattern because a habitual pattern that every five-year-old still possesses has eroded in you to the point where we've got to put you in an environment to not insult this and regrow it. But if the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, how come you can't do the whole, you know? And even if you fix the part, how come you can't do the whole? We've got to ask that question because that's the beauty of movement. Merely average ranges of motion and normal muscularity can do Olympic things or hardly anything at all. And they got the exact same (laughs) impairment measures. They just don't have the same functional expressions, you know?
2: Yeah. Uh 100% you know we I think sometimes in all of this forget that practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent Mm. and what we forget is that all of the things that you're doing so if you're swinging a kettlebell a lot with your feet turned out you're like but my hip is I'm powerful and I'm getting fitter and I'm like well what you're practicing is jumping and landing with your foot turned out and again if you don't want to have any other Expression or use that fitness in not a you know I'm like it's difficult to ski or difficult to ice skate or difficult to bike with your feet turned out like ducks. It's difficult to win the Olympics with your feet turned out like ducks. You can do it. Nah, you can't do it. Never mind. What am I talking about? <laughs> so the the idea here is I think we forget that we are practicing and reinforcing and wiring patterns in our brains that we are going to use in the world. And when we're trying to get to the bottom of injuries in children. If you're letting them turn their feet out and build a gigantic dysfunctional pattern, we'll call it dysfunctional because it's the anti-functional pattern. It's not even dysfunctional. If, you know, may not cause you pain yet, but it's anti-functional. Then what you're you own that movement inefficiency, movement potential catastrophe down the line because you're not appreciating that what you're practicing matters, and that is the difference between GPP in sports preparation training. And what I'm really interested in is not, hey, what's the minimalist dose I can do while I'm still getting reimbursed by the insurance company, you know, taking 100% of the skill out of the leg machine because bigger quads solve all problems. I'm interested in, do you have the skill to express whatever meager abilities and meager tissue strength? Because, you know, I'm like, look, it's not always a strength problem, people. How do I know? I work with kids. They're weak. I mean, these children are weak, yet they can kick ass in the pool and do all these yep. things. But they're, they're weak, so it can't be about that. They don't have Less any up.
3: unnecessary parking brakes on. You drive around That's with right. adult parking brakes all your life, you're going to think you're supposed to get eight miles to the gallon. You know. But, but kids are efficient <laughs> simply because their tone is not over or under what it should be. And by the way, that That's right. whole outturn, whether it's squats or kettlebell swings, I don't know if you remember this. It might have been the second time I visited you. We were playing with the tsunami rope wave. Just, Just a single person sending a wave to another person who receives the wave, maintains their footprint, and sends a wave back. So it's that Brookfield tsunami, both hands on one end of the rope send the wave. Most people can't envision the projection of a kettlebell swing done correctly that the kettlebell is going to go out, not up if we get your feet wherever you want them and you try to do that rope wave and we slowly get your feet organized and get you hip hip hinging within your mobility, the wave gets better and your energy expenditure doesn't. But I have found that both for kids and people who are just frozen in time with those feet turned out because their golf swing's better and everything else is better with the feet turned out, they finally realize the rope wave gets bigger when I organize and keep my energy level the same than if I disorganize and up my energy level to, you know, just below puking. So, so so I use that little rope wave because there is a visual feedback loop. That's right. I don't have to tell them they put more power on the rope with the same amount of energy. They tell me. No, just,
2: just keep moving your hands out until they're at the rings and then you can press right there. It's totally fine. (laughs) I mean, that's what we've told people, right? You know, Hey, I don't want to get in the way of your intensity today. (laughs) Instead, what we're saying is, Hey, I see that this is how much range of motion you have let before you start to, you know, you know, beg bar and steal, before you start to reverse and collapse your knee and work all these things, let's go ahead and see how much we can work in that position. And this is really important because you have never said don't train. What you've said is why are we loading and you said like a dysfunctional pattern. Let's change that language even or just modulate that language. Why are you continuing to build on a foundation that doesn't transfer, that doesn't that is incomplete or doesn't scale or continue to scale. I mean, let's let's rewind uh, maybe what
3: 35 40 50 years Bruce Lee would say, please don't dishonor this punch. That's all that's all I'm saying. Please don't dishonor this hinge. Please don't dishonor this lunge. Please don't dishonor this squat. It is far better potentially than you're you're asking it to do. So have some have some honor. And and I and and Brett and I did this when I started unpacking all the wisdom in a Turkish getup. I mean, Pavel even said, you guys went an inch wide and a mile deep on this thing. And I'm like, that's because it was a fricking movement screen. It's not a lift. They wouldn't teach you how to lift heavy things until you could lift a heavy thing like this. But if you think about it, the Turkish getup starts with the kettlebell already lifted. It's already above your head. You just stand up under it. That's a carry. That's a postural integrity, mobility, Symmetry balancing act. And if you look ugly doing a getup, why would I teach you a swing? You're going to make whatever's in that getup permanent with that big ass swing because it's a compact, powerful position, not a variable, multi posture, multi pattern position. So I'm sitting here looking at the 350 year lifespan of the Turkish getup, as far as we know, saying, Oh my God, that was a rite of passage, not another exercise yeah. you did. You know, that's there, right. You know, there's a lunge in there. There, I mean, there's enough ankle and hip mobility in each side of the Turkish getup to definitely warrant an overhead squat. The shoulder is now a gyroscope. You have to make these transitions with elegance and a good footprint, and you have to do what you did the first time you taught yourself how to walk, which is get up off the ground. How many people today can walk better than they can get up off the ground? But that your birthright to walking is being able to get up off the ground. There's a Brazilian physician that actually has a timed, you know, how far can you get up off the floor? But that's the same thing we're trying to do in the movement screen. We're simply trying to thin slice it and find out which one of these postures and or patterns these archetypes and shapes is giving you an asymmetry or an inability to transition through this and it's either driven by what you think it should be or it's driven by a part you're being forced to work around that's like three moves on the chessboard to get to that answer it's not hard once once you will accept the fact that you know if, if it's a 50-50 argument are is something wrong with you or are you doing something wrong then con- compared to what it's going to take to fix something wrong with you, do you have time to do something different
2: for four weeks? And that's, you know, one of the things I, I think this brings up is we have seen simultaneously in the training environment, people become a lot more sophisticated about sleep, nutrition, movement, et cetera, et cetera. But also we have overloaded those sessions now. They're so dense where there's, there's a lot of not a lot of play. It's not a lot of exploration. And so, one of the things that we have to continue doing, and you've just brought this up so elegantly, is as a coach choice, how do I constrain the environment so that I can work on these things simultaneously within the context of an hour? That hour, whether we like it or not, is our functional unit of, of measurement to try to you know, get people to you know, be, be better in their lives. That means that my warm ups have to be more effective and thoughtful. My skill transfer movement prep, I'm still gonna do some, some cardiorespiratory training or some strength training. And then where am I gonna, you know, now conjoin my understanding of your incomplete positions with positional restoration? And so what we have to do is start to look more effectively. I don't like to do any rolling in the gym. I'm like, save the soft tissue work for at home. But let's go ahead and connect that soft tissue work that you're doing to something that happened today. How did you feel? How did you move? What happened? Maybe in the gym, we can put a band on it or something heavy, right, in the context of what we're doing, or we can warm up with these skills. But, you know, what we have to do a better job of is envisioning where we're actually going to restore people's physiology as part of the training process, yep. right? Because, you know, people are, are – you know, they still want to get fit. They still, I'm like, well, let me introduce you to the assault bike. We're going to do some brutal, ugly, mini range of motion drills here. and I'm going to make you vomit. But just save me five minutes at the end. Right. I mean, so there, there's plenty of time in there for in density. But what we do is we just keep smashing in more work instead of also saying, hey, this is a time to understand why you can or cannot achieve normal or baseline.
3: Uh, I mean, I've got a quick sidebar, biologically speaking. You do realize that almost every mammal on the planet, once all other, the, all of the other fundamental needs are met, then and only then do they get into self-grooming behavior. Isn't it funny how that's what we start with? I mean, give me, give me some roids and a spray on tan, and I'm ready for the beach. You know, I don't want to work for this stuff. But it's so funny that every other animal is so intuitive that the things that are going to keep you alive tomorrow have nothing, no aesthetic value whatsoever, right? That's, that's the long play. That's uh, finding a mate, finding, finding something like that. But it's funny how we res- when we think all is done, we resort to a grooming behavior. And uh, I just think that, that when we look at the way we handle and manage this, you, if your dog is overweight, you take them to the vet. The vet's like, "Yeah, feed them less and feed them this high-quality food." And you're like, "Oh yeah,"
2: it it never even occurs. No, no. I, I have my I have my dog on these fat burners and this juice cleanse, <laughs> and I've enrolled her into high-intensity yoga. So you know, look, there are so many ways in, and I want people to appreciate that we, everyone on this call has a good idea of what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. Like we have, I have personally strong feelings about the ways you should train, but that's just my feeling about it. But underneath the way that you like to train and the way you like to train, you will see that there are universal exposures to energy systems, to full range of motion, to all the different ways I can challenge a full range of motion. And so ultimately I really do honor that it's okay that you like to do Pilates and swing a kettlebell and hill sprints. I'm like, good enough for me. You, know, you do Peloton and you deadlift and CrossFit and go to church. Cool. Look, it doesn't matter what the thing looks like, right? Ultimately we can get a little bit less precious about it and say, well, are you exposing yourself to these positions enough to maintain your, physio- your physiology. And what I'll say is, let me sort of define for people how I've come to think about exercise. Here's what a human being should be able to do with their shoulder, right? Here's one example. And what I can say is, well, how did you get there? Did you get there from a snatch, from this hang position, or did you get there from a press? Did you kick upside down already with your arms over your head? Did you hang from a pull-up bar? So all of those ways of expo- exposing that, did you grab a barbell Or you want a kettlebell. We call that open torque or closed torque. Okay, great. Now, look at how I can challenge this. Do you have, can you do it under load? Because what we always do is make it heavier, make it heavier, make it heavier until you break down. But I'm like, what happens if we add a little speed to that? What happens if we add a little cardiorespiratory demand? You got to breathe hard and put your the arms over your head. What happens if you have to do more than five reps? God forbid, like something like swimming, right? Or five downward dogs in a row or 10 downward dogs in a row. Suddenly, like I'm next to gray and we're going hard in the paint and we're competing against each other, right? Suddenly, what you see is the person who is the most competent at managing their root positions under the most iterations is probably the most skilled person and the most the person who can pick up the skill the fastest which is one of the ways that Juliet and i have come to identify what we think is athleticism how do you incorporate a new novel skill the fastest i know that you can do step aerobics with weights really well because you practice those right. moves a lot but i'm looking again at transferability and what we see then is then okay i'm working with athletes Who are in season, my only metric is, are they better swimmers? Are they better rowers? Then as soon as we're out of season, I'm like, let's come back to Mr. Transfer Town, right? But what we suddenly see, though, is those root ideas are the same. I see that when you fatigue your back rounds and you lose your shoulder position. Okay, Instead of saying we're going to get this much work done, no matter how much, what I can start to train you is identify oh, I've lost my ability to maintain my positions. I've exceeded the stimulus point of adaptation. diminishing
3: returns is identified. If you've got yes. a minimum effective yes. dose, a point of diminishing <laughs> returns, and now I'm going to do Ray Dalio, radical transparency and algorithmic thinking, it's over. You got it. It's fixed. It's over. It's over. Um, Rinse, wash, repeat. No, it's, it's good. But what you just did there when you were talking about shoulder position, and I want everybody to hear it because every now and then when my wife and I are just clicking through the TV, we always want to see who can beat Bobby Flay tonight. We go back to those reruns. Bobby Flay takes on all comers that would, doesn't know what he's cooking, maybe limit ingredients. You just basically said there's 15 different ways to prepare this meal. Right. And so many people go to chef school or fitness school or rehab school with their mentor's way of fixing it. And they've become expert at that. But the fact that you've got to realize, you've got to bring some variability and options to this because not everybody is as enthusiastic about exercise. Not everybody has the resources you do, but we can still get your shoulder right. And so what you just did is Bobby Flay's shoulder position. Oh, you're going to take away the pepper? I'd use paprika. Oh, you're going to take away the paprika? We got some chili powder. And there's so many ways to get there without making it an equipment thing. And I remember when I first started on the lecture circuit for Perform Better, Chris Poirier goes, Everybody liked what you set up on stage, but come back here with me. And he took me to Carlos Santana's section of the table. Carlos with a band. Carlos with a ball. Carlos with a club. Carlos with a, you know. And he goes, dude, just tell them what equipment to use and tell them what to do. I'm like, I was sort of just talking about movement patterns because it can be a straight bar or a sandbag. He goes, nobody's going to get into that. And I'm like, well, everybody else has already done the exercise thing and body part thing. Why don't we? Why don't we go back and talk? Why wouldn't we dedicate a DVD to squatting or lunging? Why do we have to dedicate it to stability ball, med ball, or band? And believe it or not, when I first, I I was this physical therapist in a cave that was just talking about this, let's take somebody's movement sample before we start pontificating about their movement remedy or their competitive advantage. And what I heard you say about your swimmers is, I'm going to GPP them. But then as we transition back into swimming, I'm going to remove the physical barriers to skill acquisition of this sport. However, the first biggest physical barriers are dysfunctional movement, dysfunctional lifestyle, broken sleep, poor nutrition, hydration, psychosocial, relationship anxiety, performance anxiety, whatever. These these are all barriers to skill acquisition as well. So we've got to check those. And then you and I got to clear that knee and feel. we got to check those shoulder legs, make sure the suboccipitals, you know, but it's so funny how everybody gets their one remedy and they just play it to death. And my whole point is I'm just wide open. I just, I never, I was telling a kid this in the clinic the other day. I said, I don't walk in the exam room looking for an SI or shoulder, regardless of what the history says. I'm going to run them through the top tier of the SFMA, and only four things can happen. They will be normally moving without pain. They will not move very well, and they'll have pain, right? They'll move horribly, but they're not having pain, or they're having pain, but if they hadn't told me, I'd have said, "Eh, ankle mobility looks pretty good. The funny thing is most therapists and chiropractors will, as Perry Nicholson got from one of our collaborations, stop chasing the pain. It may not be where the problem is. You can always come back to it. But what if I find that you have pain forward bending but dysfunctional single leg stance on the right? There's four things I can do in the next eight minutes to juice that single leg stance on the right. Then I can go back and check your forward bending. Did it have any did better quality input have any effect on this? Or are you exactly the same? And most of my career. It hasn't been a hundred percent fix, but it hasn't been a zero percent fix either. And so I said, I have to consider the percent burden of dysfunction that you were making me think is a forward bending problem when I just exposed a huge problem in single leg stance, but you weren't chirping about it. So we didn't really look at it that much. And you can never play dysfunction against pain ever again. The minute you start doodling in their pain, you get in a pain conversation and a pain dance that you can never get out of. So I always wanted to have a functional baseline to say, even if you feel like shit today, if you're moving better than yesterday, I want to make you comfortable, but I don't think what happened yesterday was wrong. Whereas if you feel great today, but you're moving like shit, please don't bake me a pie. Don't hug me around the neck. You're just feeling better for some other reason other than me. And I had to face that as a, as a stoicist, right? As a young physical therapist who's trying to be stoic in my thinking, all the patients that are praising me aren't telling me I'm good. I'm just thinking that's what they're... And all the ones who are chirping at me aren't telling me I did something wrong yesterday. They're going through an uncomfortable transition. And so I needed a baseline so I wouldn't chase pain and I wouldn't use my talent in, in the wrong direction. And so therefore, I walk in that room and I just let it be what it is. And I'll always play any dysfunctional window against the pain baseline because If my treatment is transferable against your biggest complaint, then you're welcome not to show
2: back up again or you're welcome to lean in. Um, That's right. And I think one of the things we can do for all of our – the athletes and coaches we work with is if someone says my shoulder hurts, we don't go, oh, let's push here. You can do that yourself, right? What I want you to say is when you do what? So let's uh, assign – Well done. Let's assign a movement – to that language, and guess what? Again, there will be lots of factors, a lot of uh, issues here. Um, you know, uh, uh, it's going to come to me in a second. Anatomy trains. Thomas Myers says, "Hey, look, if we address this fascia. Is it hydration? Is it restoration? Have we changed the nociception of the fascia? Have we res-? like?" He's like, "There's ten things going on. Difficult to say which one of those made the change." So, I'm comfortable just saying better, same worse. You know what I mean? Like, it's okay to, to say that. But what we see a lot of times is that as soon as someone says this, right, oh, that hurts. And then we actually make them do a bottom up kettlebell where there's higher stability, higher recruitment, and better mechanics and they still can't express a full range, when we restore their normative range, just, just do that. Here are a few mobilizations to get into this position. Suddenly that is not the thing. And so what's nice then is that this gives us a start position to start to improve and a finish position to start to improve because through range pain comes from somewhere. And it's not, your tendon just doesn't work by itself, it works in a concert of the whole system. So when we improve the whole system, Again, even just changing the quality of the movements, we could say range capacity there. Oftentimes that's enough for the brain to say, oh, maybe we've unloaded this tissue that was sensitized. Maybe we've changed some input. Maybe the brain is getting some different feedback mechanism. Maybe the brain doesn't care anymore about this. Until you've restored your native ranges, Mm -hmm. I am still thinking that is an incomplete healing process. So the pain for me is the low bar. I tell people, people are like, I'm like, what is your goal? I want to get out of pain. I'm like, "Mm, that's your goal right today. But what's your real goal? They're like, okay, I want to smash the golf. I'm like, okay, now we have a real goal, right? I want to run this half marathon with my daughter. Okay, now we're really talking, right? Because we will get ahead of this pain as we normally do very quickly because we have all these incredible techniques and tools and we restore your position and mechanics. But we stop in our traditional medical model At the door of pain. We reduce your pain from eight to two. Great. I can no longer pay you because I don't even know what I'm going to fix next. Right. 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 So let's go ahead and just like discharge you. Meanwhile, we have what someone wrote was within normal limits, which means within normal, incomplete, shitty range of motion, poor skill. And what we haven't done is keep layering on. What is it that I should be able to do? Now we can ask the next question. Why is your environment bending you to be able to miss all of this hip range of Right,
3: right. No, it's, it's, it's such a transparent way
2: to talk. I'm still not
3: as good at it as I want to be, and I, I literally feel both invigorated and handcuffed at the same time by you and I are taking a lot of this passion, a lot of this algorithmic thinking, and a lot of the radical transparency that we're willing to eat ourselves. We're trying to put it on a remote device and ask people, in many cases, some of the hardest questions they got to ask. But the one thing that we're trying to do is build both a survey, a questionnaire, and a movement screen. Because if you tell me all is good, and your nonverbal screen, your movement, tells me it's not, I'm going to have to listen to your primal signature language, which is movement, not vocalization. Your vocalization is skewed. 81% of America thinks they're in above average or average health. And meanwhile, uh, I think 60% of America uh, has at least one chronic disease, 40% has two, and almost all of that 80% in another category or overweight or obese. And so I think we just look to the left and right of us. And if we're doing just a little bit better than the guy getting the newspaper on either side of the the block, you know, one's got an oxygen bottle and the other's limping, then yeah, I'm healthy. No, you're, you're not even a, a, uh, a vision of what you could potentially be, but you've been lulled into the fact, to, exactly like you said, the future is going to take care of us. I can live like this a little bit longer, and then I'll hack my way back into health. And I had a talk with myself when I turned fifty, and I'm like, "You want to drop uh, thirty-five pounds an hour when you're sixty? Because it's going to be a lot easier now." And I'm I, after my next surgery, I what? I told myself I'm not going to go that heavy anymore, so I don't need I don't need these. <laughs> I don't need to be a D cup anymore. I can, I can be a B for a while. So
2: <laughs> this is, this is why it's okay to have a conversation about hard style kettlebell swings versus, I mean, just, we have so many, I'm making fun of us. We have so many conversations that are artifacts of scholarship. That's an EO Wilson idea. Oh wow! That what we're seeing yes. is that, that, it's easy to get into the weeds and miss the really important and salient aspects of, of the conversation. And, you know, to your, to your point, uh, you know, we've normalized sort of loss of capacity and function. You know, we've been saying for a long time, so two things. One, I don't think you realize what you're capable of. And two, you should be able to t- take care of yourself. And that means eat, sleep, do, you know, take care of some of those foundations. You know, Julian and I are, are are engaged in some research with Cal Berkeley right now, looking at some schools in um, over in Richmond, and they're all Title One schools. Um, and they all uh, like eighty percent obesity rate. And when we did some surveys with those kids, they these are fourth and fifth graders, didn't know how much sleep they should get, didn't know how much like what the macronutrients were, sort didn't know how to self soothe didn't know like the basis of how we're actually educating people shouldn't surprise us when the outcomes, when someone gets a 3000 calorie Starbucks milkshake for breakfast, you know, and again, it's not the 3000 calorie milkshake. It's the daily 3000 calorie coffee milkshake. And that the thinking that I'm doing something good for myself, that is the mistake. So we have to just continue to continue to do a better job. We are actually eating less sugar as a society. Now that's super cool. Comma, our calorically dense foods are through the roof, right? So we're, we're going to have to come back around to re-educating and rewilding is sort of a, a term that I've been trying to, you know, wrap my head around. You know, what is it that humans need to be able to do? Because you and I aren't necessarily arguing about how to bench press more although we can absolutely go into those conversations about how to bench press more we're just talking about giving people back their choices exactly and then if you want to make a choice to be a road cyclist knock yourself out you want to be a choice to be a zumba dancer knock yourself out but we're you know we we, we want to give people the choice of the conversation lifestyle
3: you and I both have the the coaching acumen and the science to make your bench press go up but it's going to take a little bit longer and a little bit more effort on both our parts to get your bench press to go up without compromising your shoulder mobility. Both are possible. That's right. One can be quicker. I can maximize your shoulder mobility or maximize your bench press strength, or I could show you the delicate dance of mobility and stability that in the right place, Start doing movement, and and that's that's what nobody gets. They um, they want to pack on the muscle, thinking. And I can tell you how underval. I mean, how how uh, very little value the bench press has in the NFL. You and I both know, two twenty five for reps. Tells me way more about your shoulder and neck health than it does your athletic performance, yeah. right? <laughs> we're looking for the grimace, and we're looking for the asymmetry, and we're looking for the torn pec and the the half of Vol's bicep when you're doing that bench press. It's got no bearing on how we're going to pick you or not. <laughs>
2: so. Yeah, I think I think that's really it. You know, um, so we're at a turning point now, where and you are the first wave. You and Lee are really the first wave of the generation that is now in control or or are the tastemakers. And we're starting to see some of the masters retire. You know, McGill is starting to retire, you know, Sarman, you know, we're going to lose our masters. And, you know, I think as a good example of this, if you're not a, you know, a therapist nerd, uh, someone like Joseph Pilates, you know, do you think Joseph Pilates would have stopped his thinking if he, continue to live another hundred years or with his process evolved. So, you know, what we're starting to see is we are that we have to shift this nature of this conversation and we have to look at the people who are really coaching. So if you're an elite coach in a strength and conditioning facility and you're not, and you're kind of looking at Bally's or YMCA, that's where a lot of people are getting their health information and fitness, lifetime fitness, you know, Equinox, you know, you, we have to go into and say, here's best practice and here's how you can integrate this to have a better you know, commercial outcome. I just feel like we've come through what I'm going to call peak industrial fitness Good where term. we, it, it's an, it's the, and the only intention of that is to make money. That's, that's what that is. And our tour fitness or our tour kind of thinking is to transform self to transform society. And we're finally having The English national soccer team is is a ready state team, for example. Okay, they're all on our right, and we have a young group of kids who come up through the academy system, who all can front squat, they all can press, they all caring about their nutrition. They're really pushing this old guard of strength conditioning and fitness back at their homes, their home you know FC clubs, and but the strength coaches, physios, performance coaches at national soccer team are our age, are young and bright and handsome. Did I mention that? <laughs> and they are really, um, you know, they're the generation who's saying, no, we actually can get a lot more and we can play a lot longer and a lot harder and actually expect more out of our people. And so what we're starting to see is that there is a tide change. My personal mantra is that the glacial pace is the breakneck pace. So if you feel like we're going fast and you're also frustrated, you feel like we're not going fast enough and you're also frustrated. That's how long this takes. That's how long and how difficult this conversation brought up. You brought up Stu McGill and, and
3: you're the guy that picked me up at the airport when I was going into Stanford for that onstage debate. And it really wasn't a debate between Stu and I, so many people had us slinging snowballs at each other, but I love the fact uh, you were there, Charlie Weincroft was there, Dan John was there, and you were all basically showing support in that I tried to end that thing, and I think Larry put it up on the internet, with with a statement about we're here to raise the bar on both communication and accountability. We've got... We've got to measure twice. we got to cut once. And if every subcontractor in your house thinks an inch is a different thing, it's not going to be a house you're going to want to live in. So, right. you know, the fact that we've had strength coaches lean in, lean into the, the screening process. As a matter of fact, it was the strength coaches that embraced the movement screen when the athletic trainers uh, thought, no, nah, no, nah, we, we can't do all this. And actually a lot of my own community in physical therapy thought I was trying to teach the art of musculoskeletal evaluation to everyone. And I'm like, no, you don't have to be an eye doctor, have an eye chart. Anybody can, matter of fact, DMV uses an eye chart, right? And if you flunk that thing, you're not getting a license. I feel the exact same way about a movement screen. You flunk that thing, I want you to see somebody before you play football for me. That's all, you know, but but when everybody tries well, to- let me, tell you, let me tell you why you failed though,
2: really? <laughs> because the soccer mom- doesn't put her kid through it and say, I need a different intervention here. That's where we have, it has not gone far enough. It's not deep enough. It's not understood enough to see the possibilities of this. And we haven't shifted the onus and the ownership back to the family unit that, you know, God bless you. Um, there was a, there, there's an, there's an internet, uh, troll person. I won't, I won't dignify their name who just, you know, physio says, you know, we cannot prevent injury. That's impossible. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Have you seen the outcomes of the FIFA ACL reduction injury problem? They just, FIFA put out a little little 20-minute program for kids to do three times a week. And the reduction in lower extremity injuries for moving better was profound. Right. So once again, if you can, I can show you one outlier, your hypothesis doesn't exist anymore.
3: I had somebody turn me from the back row and say, you can't prevent injury one day. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. You can prevent stupid rehab. You can prevent insufficient rehab. You can prevent stupid (laughs) training. You can prevent stupid programming and stupid technique, but you're right. You can't prevent injury. It's a randomness that has gotten us here. So yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, some injuries are going to occur at no fault of yours. And, And I hate to say it, but those are acceptable. If you're matched to your environment and had a bad day. But most of the time, and to borrow from a really well-organized term, state of readiness says a lot about how the day's gonna end. That your state of readiness when you start the day and the task you choose to overcome says a lot more about the injury rate than you think. But yeah, we can prevent, you know, bad evaluations, bad out, we can prevent all that. So, so we can prevent bad professional service with radical transparency, algorithmic thinking, communication, and accountability. No, we can't prevent injuries, but I, I can do yeah, far yeah, better I mean, than the person asked the <laughs>
2: You're gonna you're gonna step off a curb and twist your ankle, right? Because you didn't yeah. see it because your hands are full. So let's define injury and let's and this is one of the reasons why I've gone back to Nagi, Said Nagi, and his model of disability, that you know, they he says disability begins when you cannot occupy a role in society, cannot occupy a role in the team, can't go to get an education, right? That is disability. And I'm like, oh, that's injury. So, real injury happens when you can't, like if you, I think as you said, if you can't go to work, that's a medical emergency. And, and so, what I want people to understand is there's that line. So, that's what you're saying. Yes, it's really difficult to control the turf, right? It's really, it's difficult to my, you know, some of my soldiers in the Marine Aviation's Weapon Tactical School of Marines haven't slept for three days. They are not going to be their best selves. There's going to be some accidents, right? Can't control that. But that's not what I'm defining. So coming back to measuring me- that, that inch, I'm like, oh, you're talking about musculoskeletal pain. That's not the same thing as injury, right. right? So let's control what we can control at least because otherwise we're just throwing up our hands and we're saying, oh, there's nothing you can do. And that couldn't be more disingenuous and disempowering and a fundamental and foundational and truth. Absolutely. There are things you can do, you know. So, for example, can't control injury? Oh, let me tell you this. The research is super clear that kids who are stressed and not sleeping in finals are more likely to be injured. So, if I have kids sleep, then I have reduced injury risk. Ergo, your hypothesis is bullshit. (laughs) But you're just not thinking about injury prevention as a sleep mechanism. And once again, come back into this performance world where I'm like, I can't have my athletes kick ass unless they're sleeping. So, you know, if you your little tiny view is the person who, you know, comes through, through managed care, right. And you're seeing, and you have a backup of, you know, 30,000 patients who are trying to see you and you don't really see incomes and outcomes and you don't track failed out, outcome measures. Then I can see why you're thinking the way you right, do. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's for giveable. and, and it's really
3: it's really funny to watch people in the professions, the coaching and, and, and rehabilitation, almost defend their platform, realizing that they're equally dissatisfied with it and they're simply scared to do it. I'm like, you know, a lot of people give us credit for the functional message. Everybody was thinking it. I was stupid enough to actually say it. In, in writing and in front of a mic, but there was a trend i mean look at, look at the level of manual therapy you were exposed to in PT school that I had to go up to Canada to to learn i was I was teaching functional exercise in London, Ontario, just so I could learn how to rack and crack necks and stuff like that because we were we were hands off you know, and, and so you start blending manual therapy and realizing the best manual therapists don 't really know how to prescribe exercise. And in most rehab situations, most therapists are trying to fix something with exercise. It's going to require your God-given hand talent to get the, if they could move through it on their own, they would. You got to move them there. You know, just like you got to pick up a kid when they fall sometimes. you got to put your hands in this. you got to roll up your sleeves. But at some time, if you're doing manual therapy 10 visits in, it better be a really bad problem or you're, <laughs> you're setting up an unnecessary dependence. You're their drug dealer.
2: You just happen or, to be doing soft tissue. That's right. Or that's you're going to pay off your student loan debts really fast. I mean, you can, you can look at it that way, too. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there was, a, there was a really good article that went out and circulated last week about indefensive manual therapy. But even then, I think people were still thinking about manual therapy as only pain reduction, not restoration of position. There are some things where I'm like, I do a thing to your tibia and then you can squat differently. Why am I doing this thing to your tibia? So that you can squat differently. That's the thing. Not because this takes away your pain, right? Because I don't chase pain. I chase your ability to have your body do what it's supposed to be able to do.
3: Dude, this has been so fun for me. Thank you.
2: I'm such a fan of you guys. I don't want people to understand that Gray is such, and Lee also, Gray is a brother and so important to my thinking holistically. And I just like, it's like I have a secret, secret cabal going on. And, um, and I just, I just want everyone to know that I, you know, I've been begging, borrowing, stealing from you guys for, you know, before I was a student, that's how such a fan I am of the program. We
3: love it when another race driver drives our car. Cause, uh, <laughs> we get to see if it's a good car or they're just bringing more talent, talent to it, but no, it's, it's, it's mutual man. And the way you articulate things, I don't. I don't often copy phrases from people, but I'm, I'm copying from you as much as anybody. I love when you talk about organized. I love when you talk about those archetypes because all I really care about is how you look at the bottom of an overhead deep squat. All those little hiccups you do in there, yeah, that's picking fly shit out of the pepper. When you don't finish well, I know exactly what's wrong with you. So the, your brain is trying to, you saw through a lot of the minutia of the, what we had to do to pass a reliability study. We oh. all look at movement well. We actually had uh, you know, pass a reliability study, and most of the unfavorable research in the movement screen is people who didn't do their own reliability study, which means maybe you didn't do the screen right because when you do the screen right, it's pretty inter- and intra-rater reliable. And as far as finding the bottleneck, it's what you do with it. As long as you change the bottleneck, we're fans.
2: <laughs> well, and I'll just say that there's a lot of funny conversations that smell like science and research, and it's not actually... It's, re- it's not science. It's research. You know, science is induction through, you know, pattern recognition of large data sets and your shoulder range of motion is math. It's set. So once we sort of wrap our heads around the fact that science is pattern recognition and shoulder range of motion is math, what we're really talking about is logic here, not research. And that's very different. Well, this isn't science really putting,
3: natural phenomenon in a reusable and resourceful language. Mm. I mean, that's all it is, is identifying patterns and, 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 you know, behaviors that we can do. And for far too long, we haven't managed movement as a behavior. And I think you and I, get to be on the forefront of calling movement a behavior and biomechanists have their place and exercise physiologists have their place, but there are behavioral bottlenecks in movement that have a lot to do with the brain and the opinion and the training environment you came from. And you and I, I think have the ability to debunk that without offending people. And, and I'm sure we do and we offend some people, but the small minority of people we offend are just the, the aggregate of a new message. That's all that is. So,
0: Well, Kelly, thank you so much. It was a privilege, honestly, to listen to you two talk. It was (laughs) was a great experience. Um, And I know so many professionals are going to get a lot out of this. Um, I think the conversation went in a multitude of ways, and I think everybody can pull something from this and take back to either their gym, their practice, and start thinking about things differently, which I think is exactly what the two of you want. Anyways,
3: Well, so. can you tell we're probably going to work together before it's yeah. all done on some kind of project? I just don't know what we're going to call it. We'll call it Lee's Hair Project or something like Lisa, that. Lee,
2: I'm in, I'm in. Well, thank you all so much. I appreciate you guys so much, and I can't wait to be hugging out in person. Thank
3: Hi to the you. girls. Glad you got them on the river, man. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right, man. See you, buddy.
0: That'll do it for this episode of The Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.